coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Friday to you. First and foremost, I want to thank everybody who reached out and texted and DM'd and even some calls. I love calls. I'm one of those folks that I, I prefer a text before a call, but when I put the show's phone number out, that's not your fault. Anyway, thanks so much to everybody who uh, reached out and wished me a happy birthday. I do appreciate that. We're now uh, year 49, day one <laughs> of the life of yours truly, Ron. And uh, let's just dive into some headline hopping. I've got some unopened, or I'm sorry, some unclosed tabs that I need to uh, to deal with. Y'all remember when I sort of ambush called Representative Casey Carpenter from uh, Dalton, Georgia. He had uh, presented a bill to provide some tenant protections, uh, which I thought was okay, cool. I found myself agreeing with a Republican legislator about uh, combating rental properties unfit for human habitation. Cool. Y'all aren't going to believe this. I, I, I actually... I'm actually kind of happy to see something else he's doing. Y'all, I have a favorite Republican. Go figure. I want you to listen to a little bit of this story from the Georgia Recorder. And I was drawn by the headline, and I thought, is this the same guy? It is. Here's the headline. Dalton Republican state lawmaker tries again on legislation to give DACA students in-state tuition. I mean... Sort of makes sense anyway, right? DACA students who live in the state should be able to pay in-state tuition, but currently don't. And I'm looking at this headline, and it says, Dalton Republican lawmaker tries again on legislation to give DACA students in-state tuition. Huh. Uh, So let me lead you right into the story. Georgia College and Technical Students who participate in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, could get a break in their tuition thanks to a bill under consideration in the State House. But similar measures have failed in recent years. I'm guessing because there aren't more Republicans behind him on this. The story goes on. DACA, an Obama-era program that shields people from deportation who were brought to the country as undocumented minors. Uh, As of September 30th, there were about 19,300 Georgia residents participating in DACA, according to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Those students who are in college now pay out-of-state tuition, which can be more than three times higher than in-state tuition. Bill author, Representative Casey Carpenter, says that's not fair. The Dalton Republican Casey Carpenter. What's happening, y'all? Okay, here's a quote. We have talked about the declining enrollment in our colleges across the state for some time, he said, at a House Higher Education Committee hearing on Wednesday. We've talked about border waivers that we offer to kids from Florida, from Tennessee, from Alabama, from South Carolina, and this piece would allow kids that have gone through our K-12 systems and have graduated who want to continue on in their educational process to attend them at a rate that's affordable. Carpenter pitched his bill as an opportunity to fill empty college seats and boost Georgia's workforce. Under it, DACA recipients, also known as DREAMers, would pay an opportunity tuition rate determined by the Board of Regents or State Board of the Technical College System, which could differ between institutions 
and be set at 110% of the standard in-state tuition for the current year. The bill exempts universities that have not admitted all qualified applicants in the two most recent academic years, which could leave out the state's most competitive colleges. Schools would be required to give priority to students on in-state tuition and could defer applications of qualified opportunity tuition students until all in-state applications are received. Here's a quote. I think the intention of the paragraph is to say, look, we're going to check in-state first, out-of-state second, opportunity students third, Carpenter said. It's just to make it very clear that American citizens are first and then the opportunity citizens are second. Okay, ideologically speaking, a little bit of a problem with some of this, like why the 110% tuition weight versus just 100% in-state tuition, but nonetheless, it's still better. In fact, uh, where was the quote on this? Oh, David Garcia, uh, Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials, uh, Galeo, said the bill is a step in the right direction. But Galeo is concerned the residency requirements could leave people out and the two tuition classifications would create a two-tiered system. Yes, yeah, I agree with that. But here's another problem Casey Carpenter has. D.A. King, an anti-illegal immigration activist, said the bill favors undocumented Georgians over American citizens living in other states. His quote, there was a time on this campus where the majority of the legislators, I'm guessing that's how he talks, were what we would call pro-enforcement. I don't know if that's true anymore, but this bill will certainly be an indicator. <clears throat> he does continue. There's a lot of people out there watching this bill. And a lot of us consider a decision to do this to be very un-American. I don't know that that's how he sounds. It's just a guess. Let me go back to my friend, my favorite Republican, Casey Carpenter, and give him his just desserts here. He filed a similar bill in 2021, did pass out of committee, didn't get a House vote. Uh, that bill was kind of a compromise. A previous version of the bill would have charged Dreamers at the same rate as other in-state students. The year before that, in 2020, that version stalled in committee over concerns about a Supreme Court case. Casey Carpenter, y'all. Go on. Oh, me dang. I have a favorite Republican. I do have some concerns, though. Anybody who's grousing about uh, DACA students paying out-of-state tuition when they've lived in fact i think his bill would have said uh the, the 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 daca student would have had to have lived in the state until 2013 or been the minor child of a resident who has lived in the state for that amount of time go back and read that exactly how it was yeah, uh, Dreamers will need to have graduated from a Georgia high school or obtained an equivalency diploma and lived in Georgia since January 1, 2013, up to the present time, or be the dependent child of a parent who has. So for those beefing about this measure, and, and again, 110% is better than three times, you know, uh, for those beefing about Dreamers getting this, what they perceive as a break, I have to I have to say no, it's not a break. It's getting it's getting what they've actually been paying into all along anyway. If you live in this state for well as this would for 10 years, whatever you're living in comes with a property tax whether you are renting or whether you own and are paying a mortgage on it, you are paying property tax. Landlords don't pass that cost on to themselves. No, it's baked into the rent. Or if you're paying a mortgage, it's you know, paid as part of the mortgage, right? So if 
a dreamer has been living in a household in state for 10 plus years, whoever they've been living with has been paying into the same kitty, the property tax that any Georgia resident parent who has a kid that's going to college, that's going to have that in-state tuition for them has been paying themselves. It's central to the valid idea that even if you're not a Georgia resident, a U.S. citizen, if you are paying property taxes at the local and county and state level, you probably should derive some benefit from it, right? Indigent health care, if necessary, public education, in-state tuition, maybe even, I don't know, should you get to vote on your local and county state elections? You're getting taxed. Isn't that taxation without representation? Isn't that what our forefathers were? Oh, it's a little sticky, right? Or should we just say, all right, fine. Um, if you're not going to be allowed to be a resident here, should you have to pay those taxes? I mean, if you derive no benefit, why would you, right? That's the conundrum. And for the record, I don't know exactly how I feel about uh, a, a non-citizen, a non-resident. Well, not really not resident. They are a resident. They're just not citizens. I don't know how I feel about a non-citizen participating in elections. I can see where the argument makes some sense, though. If you're paying taxes, you should be allowed to participate in the representation part as well, right? You would think, kind of. I mean, that's one of our founding principles. Huh. This is just another one of those sticky things that doesn't get cleaned up, doesn't get fixed, because our federal immigration policy has been stuck in the mud at the federal level for so long. We, we just can't seem to get any substantive adults-in-the-room conversation, some tangible solutions to deal with our immigration problems. But again, Casey, the Republican from Dalton Carpenter, wants to make it more affordable for Georgia Dreamers to go to Georgia colleges. I, I'm a little stunned. This this is responsible governance, y'all. You don't have to think, oh, I'm definitely going to vote for that guy when he runs for re-election if you live in his district. But can we at least confess that this is the sort of Republican we'd prefer to be working with versus also from this corner of the state, the Marjorie Taylor Greens? More Ron Show on America One Radio next. Oh, hey, you're still here. Hey, that's cool. Thanks for sticking around. Not only am I host of The Ron Show, I'm also Ron Roberts, real estate agent slash realtor with eXp Realty. That's right. I help folks buy and sell residential real estate in and around Metro Atlanta. And we've been through a crazy couple of years, have we not? Between COVID, the post-COVID market, the craziness, you could throw an open house on a souped up tool shed and you would have cars lined around the block to come in and see it and throw an offer well over asking price. Well, those days are no longer a part of us and interest rates are a little higher than they were before. But I must say, it's still a great time to either buy or sell or both real estate, residential real estate in Metro Atlanta. Why buy? I tell tenuous buyers all the time, if you are renting right now, 
You are paying someone else's retirement accounts your money, and it might as well go to you. The cost of housing in Atlanta is not going to get cheaper. The population is going to continue to grow well into the 2040s, with nearly a million and a half new residents expected to come here. So you better get a house sooner rather than later. And if you can afford to buy an investment property, now if you already own your home, why not buy one nearby you as well and create some additional income that could be your retirement savings and you get to choose one of your new neighbors. Now, if you're thinking about selling, but you're thinking, oh man, I really missed out on that huge market in the past summer or two. Okay, yeah, sure. But the values aren't dropping. So you still got plenty you've earned just by owning what you're in and need to sell soon. Got questions? Feel free to hit me up. 843-283-0078 or email me ron at rononthereal.com. Georgia MLS 396-720. Website rononthereal.com. That's me, Ron Roberts with EXP Realty. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Earlier this week, we spoke with Stephen Owens with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about the pitfalls of school voucher pushes in state legislatures. Here in particular in Georgia, there is another new state voucher bill, Senate Bill 601 didn't work last year. Senate Bill 173 in 2019 didn't either, but Senator Greg Dolezal of Cumming is not giving in. So he has uh, filed a new bill, 233 this week, uh, would open um, school vouchers up to just about any state resident who is willing to accept full responsibility for their kids' education. It would send $6,000 a year to parents to help cover education-related costs, including private school tuition. His thinking now is that, you know, coming out of COVID, that there's a little more political momentum. Now, Dolezal says he plans to amend the bill so that it only applies in years when the state fully funds public schools per its Quality Basic Education Act formula. That's something that Stephen Owens brought up in our conversation earlier this week as well. It's, it's hard to imagine a world where school choice proliferates. Uh, without it hurting public schools because it's the same public dollars. Like we're talking about the same pot of money, mm-hmm. which is our tax dollars, revenue that state collects. If we're going to send that to private schools, that's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and we know that public schools are the largest line item inside the state of Georgia's budget. And that is right and good um, that this is a primary, it's in the state constitution. It's a primary ob- obligation in the state of Georgia to provide uh adequate public education for all students free of charge. And so whenever I hear folks say that like, okay, we can do both. We can have a school choice system and a public education system. I find that hard to believe when these vouchers that the author wrote that need to be expanded were started when the state of Georgia was cutting billions from public education. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very much treated in the eyes of lawmakers as um, instead of going to public schools, why don't we instead fund this, these these private schools via these vouchers? So it's hard for me to not see the connection between those things. The reason schools might struggle to provide opportunities is because they don't have the resources because we're sending hundreds of millions of dollars to things like private school vouchers. And so in a similar note, the folks at Fund Georgia's Future had a nice little tweet thread earlier today uh, at Fund GA Future, I'll share that for you at Ron Show ATL. That talks about uh, 
Senator Dolezal's amendment, saying the proposed amendment that this voucher would only apply when the state fully funds public schools is a good one. Let's look at other amendments that would make this bill better. And here goes their thread. (laughs) First, any talk of, quote, parent empowerment falls flat if parents aren't notified of the intentional discrimination that a potential private school performs. So their proposed amendment, participating schools must clearly state online and physically the types of students they refuse to educate. Second tweet, the definition of fully funded public schools needs to be accurate. Georgia is one of only six states without any funding to educate kids in poverty. Here's their proposed amendment. This voucher will not take effect until Georgia passes and finances an opportunity wait. Third tweet, protections for students with disabilities and multilingual learners are forfeited when families take vouchers. State law can change that. Here's their proposed amendment. Participating private schools must enforce federal protections provided in IDEA and Equal Educational Opportunities Act. Fourth tweet, when the state pushes vouchers, this lowers the amount of money needed to maintain and improve public schools. Their proposed amendment, public schools will be held harmless for two years for a student who takes a voucher, five years for rural schools. Their fifth tweet, the public is kept in the dark about standards, discipline, practices, curriculum, etc. in private schools, making vouchers ripe for fraud and abuse. Their proposed amendment, robust state auditing of participating schools with quarterly reporting of discipline, curriculum, etc. Sixth tweet, the Constitution's framers, both Georgia's and the United States, prohibit state-sponsored religion. The separation of church and state needs to be recognized and enforced. Their amendment, no voucher can be used on parochial education. Their last tweet in this thread, these vouchers have so little upside and such propensity for fraud and discrimination that there is no reason for the state to invest. The amendment, set the voucher dollar amount to zero into perpetuity. (laughs) Love that. And as Stephen Owens from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute told us earlier this week, Tuesday as a matter of fact. I think it's a little bit of myth of what better performing means. That uh, in the American mind, the idea of excluding certain children means that school must be great. That because if there's a line stand that's been formed outside a door, it must be exclusive, and that must mean that you're doing excellent work. Um, I, I don't think that we need to to uh, give the benefit of the doubt to private schools that if you kick out kids for being gay or for being trans or because they can't meet the needs of them with special needs, that somehow that makes that a good school. Um, that that means that they are picking the children. This is not school choice in the sense of parent empowerment. It's school choice in the sense that the school gets to choose who they are educating. So that does not sound to me like an excellent school. That that sounds like a high wall has been put around that education. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you take the best of the best from the public schooling systems and leave the children that are, are more in need of one-on-one attention, are you not fulfilling what you say is already the case in the public school sector to begin with? Absolutely. I mean, so higher ed is a great example here. Um, we celebrate schools that reject tons of kids and say they, they're excellent. Look at the Ivy Leagues, how excellent they are, because uh, look, look at what these graduates are doing. They're rejecting 93, 95 percent of the people who apply. Mm. So, yes, absolutely. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it looks like they're doing such great work when really they're failing to educate all students. And, and then what makes this even harder to swallow? is that now that we have like these good blue ribbon studies of how students who take these vouchers are doing, it's clear that they're taking this ridiculous hit to their test scores once they use a voucher, Hmm. that uh, students who use these vouchers in universal states like Louisiana 
Indiana, Ohio, when we've had good high quality studies of how they're doing, the hit to their test scores is worse than what's happened uh, with school closures due to the coronavirus. It's worse than uh, what happened to students' test scores after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. You'll hear a lot of lawmakers, I think rightfully, bemoan the hit to kids' test scores, reading and math uh, because of school closures, because they lost uh, their parents and grandparents. And they say, okay, how are we going to get kids' scores back? We have not measured a worse education intervention than school vouchers. What what is the cause of that? Well, because these schools are not prepared to educate all children. They're educating portions of it. And when we create these programs, hundreds of millions of dollars, state dollars, it incentivizes bad programs to open up and get that free money. Staying on the education front, another way conservatives are damaging our public education system, the author of Southern Gay Teacher, Randy Fair, talks about the impact of anti-wokeism, not just on students, but on LGBTQ plus teachers, too, when we return. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. And I am joined by a former Fulton County teacher, now a retired teacher, and man, you've got the life living in Wilton Manors, Florida, one of my favorite little pockets of the Southeast. Randy Fair, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Randy wrote a book entitled Southern Gay Teacher, uh, by the way, uh, available from uh, Atmosphere Press. Is that on Amazon? Can folks just run right out to Amazon and get it? Amazon, it's uh, in all the major retailers. All right, good, good to know. I'm, I need to, I need to get this one myself, as a matter of fact. So I'll be sure to do that. Randy uh, was featured in an op-ed in the Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, within the last day or so, where he voices some concerns about all the anti-gay, anti-trans rhetoric that is now at the forefront of this anti-woke movement. Uh, His opinion piece is uh, entitled, Bans on Mentions of Gender and Sexuality Threaten LGBTQ Teachers. We will share that in today's show notes uh, at ronshowatl.com. First of all, give us just a a quick little uh, 30 to 60 second synopsis of your career as a teacher, your upbringing uh, to to teaching as well. Uh, Well, I grew up in Weaver, Alabama, Mm. and um, my teachers, um, not through anything that they necessarily meant to do, Um, But they helped me tremendously as a young gay man. And so um, when I decided to go into teaching, I thought maybe I could do that same thing for um, other students. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of how I got started in it. And so your teaching career brought you at some point in time to Fulton County. Did you start teaching in Metro Atlanta or? I did. I uh, knew that I... Uh, grew up in Weaver, Alabama, and went to school at Jacksonville State, which is in Jacksonville, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And this was in the, I went to college in the 80s, and that was a pretty dark time and place for a, you know, young gay man. And so the day after I graduated from college, mm. um, I had the truck already loaded and moved to Atlanta because I knew I had to. Uh, have some kind of gay life for myself. You know, I completely understand where you're coming from. My uh, radio career brought me here in 2018. And despite living in New Orleans for a little less than a year, it was really kind of the first place in my life that I got to live where I felt like I was immersed in a a gay community where I could uh, explore my, I mean, I joined a softball league. I play in two softball leagues here. And it's the first time at my age now, I'm 
turning 49, as a matter of fact, that uh, I, I get to do that. Whereas in many of the other places I lived before, you just didn't have that opportunity. So I understand the draw for coming to a major city. But even in the 1980s, as 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 gay friendly as Atlanta was within the LGBTQ community anyway, it was still the solid red South, the very conservative South. And so being a teacher, even in Fulton County, came with perils, did it not? Uh, tremendously so. But I will say this. I just want to say about the gay community in Atlanta in mm. the 80s. Mm. Um, when you came out in the 80s, if you came out, these people in the community just wrapped their arms around you and would do anything they could to help you and to um, make your life easier. So mm -hmm. it was just a beautiful time. I, I really uh, actually miss that spirit that was there when it was just such a small, um, you know, uh, tight knit community. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, um, I, when I was at Jacksonville State, I had heard people talk about how in Atlanta that there were openly gay teachers and no one thought anything of it. And then, of course, I got to Atlanta and realized, wow, this is not <laughs> true at all. So, yeah, it was a it was um, not an easy time. Well, not only that, but um, the AIDS epidemic was just roaring in the 1980s, and uh, the the the, the anti-gay fervor fueled by that couldn't have uh, you know been very helpful for someone in a profession like yours at that point in time either. Um, yeah, it was it was very difficult. I had you know my first boyfriend in Atlanta um, died from complications due to you know AIDS, and um, so it was a scary time. But in a way, it made you even more um, determined, you know, when we, when we thought our life could end at any moment, we were willing to take, you know, more risk and, and, you know, speak up more than, um, I think almost than it is now, you know, so, um, it seemed to be a little bit easier under all that threat. So let's get, um, let's get to your opinion piece here in the AJC. Uh, what prompted you, what fueled your interest to, to write about the the current anti-woke, anti-gay, anti-trans rhetoric coming from the right aimed at uh, schools and in particular students and teachers? Well, this is something that has been, you know, of course, just infuriating me, but I have really, you know, read these articles and not known what to do about it. Of course, this is a topic that I've been speaking about for, you know, um, a long, long time, but the thing that triggered that particular article uh, was the teacher that uh, had read my book and then contacted me because that teacher knew that I had been threatened with being fired. Mm. And the teacher did a pretty basic um, activity where the students in the club were allowed to express their identity. Mm -hmm. And someone got angry about that called in to the school system and then the school system called this person in to hr and um threatened the the teacher and that's just a very scary thing to have to go through i know mm -hmm. that from personal experience so that and um as i talk about in the article my niece who is a librarian here in florida mm -hmm. who is worried that any book that she chooses 
if some parent gets angry about it, she mm. could be charged with a third degree felony. My goodness. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, again, that's just, you know, a very scary situation to put a teacher or a librarian or a school counselor. Um, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing for, in an already difficult job to have to deal with. It's very North Korean-like, if you ask me. Uh, I'm going to read a quick excerpt that you start this opinion piece on that kind of gets folks caught up. Uh, you said here, an award-winning teacher from Georgia had reached out to you recently with fears of being fired over a pretty innocuous activity, allowing students in the Gender and Sexuality Alliance Club to express their gender. Now, when students excitedly posted about the activity in their Instagram account, apparently someone with a conservative outlook was offended and that's what led to what uh, what they were dealing with. And you also mentioned that Georgia Senate Bill 88, if it passes, that situation would only get worse. In a GSA club, such as the one this teacher sponsors, students under 16 would be unable to discuss their gender identity with the sponsor unless their parents gave consent. Uh, talk to us uh, about why it's important that students have some sort of outlet at that point. Okay, well, I would just say that the first transgender student that I was ever aware of mm. was a ninth grade student. Mm. And I would not have been able to talk to that student about um, that student's true identity. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned during that time, I hope this isn't going off topic, but mm. some of the ways that I had the class structured made it very difficult for this student to, um, to interact. And I realized when the student expressed that he was transgender, mm -hmm. I realized that I was going to have to change some things that I did as a teacher to accommodate the student's needs. Hmm. Um, to give you a specific example, a couple of examples here. When I greeted students at the door, I would always say, welcome, sir, or welcome, madam. Wow. And I realized with this student that that would put that student in a very precarious situation. Yeah. And one of the things I did in my ninth grade class, classes is we had a vocabulary quiz every Friday. Mm. And before the quiz, we would play Jeopardy. And I would divide the class into uh, the men against the women. Okay. Because at the time, I was thinking, I want a, a, a female student to lead the group. Because what I'd noticed when I, early on in my teaching career is they would almost always choose a male to be the leader. Mm. So I thought that was a really good thing to do because it forced, um, you know, someone to take the position, you know, a female to take the position as leader. But then when I had this student, I realized, wow, this student is not going to want to be, you know, would want to be on the men's team, yeah. but the men would reject the student. Yeah. Um, and so I realized, well, that's, I can't, I can no longer do that activity. Mm. Um, I hope I didn't get off topic on no. the question there. I, I find that fascinating that you had the self-awareness to understand where you were uh, either falling short or, or not fully uh, embracing a, a student who's going through a situation like that. And we know kids at that age are already going through a lot uh, because kids that age can be cruel to each other. And sometimes the only kindness uh, a, a kid, a, a gay kid, a, bi a bisexual kid or a transgender kid can feel is from another adult who works in the school system.
Yes, this was like a, a fascinating situation to me because the student, when I met with the student's parents, mm. the parents told me that this student, when when the student was a young child mm-hmm. and would be invited to parties, they would say, okay, you, the only way you can go to the party is if you wear a dress. Now, this uh, was when the child was in elementary school. Okay. And the child would not go to the party. Yeah rather than wear the dress. Right. And that tells you, wow, this is really a, a solid identity that the that this person has. Mm-hmm. And um so, you know, it was it was fascinating to me because when I would talk to the administration and for example, sometimes when they would they would do things that would reveal this student's um birth gender. Mm-hmm. And, for example, when they would call over the intercom, they would say, uh, would you send her to the office? Yeah. And most of the students in the room thought this student was male. Well, the student was male. Yeah. um, And identified as male. And most of the students saw that male identity. Mm -hmm. But then when they would say, would you you send her to the office? Yeah then it would, you know, out this kid. And when I went to the office and said, could you please not do this? Uh, They told me, no, they have to use the pronoun that the person was born with. So, um, you know, it was just a very frustrating situation. Mm. So, um, you know, there's just a whole host of things that are going on in schools now that we haven't thought through enough and haven't um, made accommodations for these students as much as we should have. We're on with uh, Randy Fair, who is a former Fulton County teacher, author of the book Southern Gate Teacher. And while uh, you are showing that while a teacher, you had grown to become more keenly aware of students' needs, those who might have been uh, gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, uh, you also write in the op-ed that's uh, featured in the AJC, uh, we'll have in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com, by the way, that you have concerns for what teachers uh, are faced with now in this wave of anti-wokeism that's uh, coming to us mostly from the right. Yeah, it's uh, very scary for a teacher because I think, um, and one of the things I point out in the article is um, how many students from the past have told me how important it was for them to have a gay teacher. But you're put in this difficult situation because you want to come out and give the kids that support, but you know if you do come out there's a good chance that they're going to fire you. Mm-hmm. So you're you're sort of stuck in this thing of how do I stay here and support as many students as I can mm-hmm. uh, at the same time not, you know, uh, giving up my sense of self-worth mm-hmm. to the school system, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've gone from this era where you couldn't be gay and or if you were found to be gay and working at a parochial school there were legal grounds that they were covered to fire you but now it's seeping into the public school realm as well 
Well, I think for my career, it was always there yeah, yeah. In public school <laughs> as well, because yeah. I always, from the moment I started teaching, I always feared that I was going to be fired. Mm. Um, and then when they did finally threaten to fire me for writing columns for the Southern Voice, um, you know, it, it was one of the scariest moments of my career. Mm. So, and I never quite was the same after that um, for, for a long period of time, you know, so um, it was just a really difficult situation. I can relate to that. Being a radio disc jockey in the 1990s in Augusta, Georgia, I was on five days a week. I was the morning show host for the pop station, the top rated. Yeah, I, I walked that tightrope myself on a, uh, on a very public profile sort of uh, manner. And uh, Working with kids, I can only imagine how daunting that was as well. Uh, we're going to, again, invite everybody to check out this opinion piece uh, in the AJC in our show notes today at ronshowatl.com. As well, rush off to Amazon or find it in your local bookstore, Southern Gay Teacher, a memoir by Randy Fair. Randy, thanks so much for talking with us and for writing your thoughts down. Thank you. I really appreciate you letting me talk about this topic. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at ronshowatl. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago. He was talking about how he used to, back in the day, take the streetcar or a trolley, maybe it was a trolley, to the old uh, Ponce de Leon uh, Park to watch the Atlanta Crackers play. Ponce de Leon Park, the minor league baseball stadium, is a shopping center now on Ponce de Leon Avenue across from Ponce City Market. There's still like an old oak tree, uh, I believe, the one that used to be like in play in center field. Uh, I want to say it's behind the TJ Maxx in that shopping center. In any event, it got me to thinking, uh, first of all, I said, Greg, how the hell old are you? I mean, I think the streetcar itself or the, yeah, the, the Atlanta streetcar systems stopped after World War II. It was like 1949. And uh, even before then, you know, they, they they transitioned to trolleys. So maybe it was the trolleys he was on. And then, of course, buses as well. But Atlanta used to have a pretty vigorous streetcar network from the late 1800s, 1871, until the last line closed in 1949. And I thought, man, we need to get this back. And Marta's sort of, kind of slowly talking about getting back to it. But of course, you know, we, we get the wild-eyed fantasies and the dreams thrown in our face as we go to vote for, you know, new sales tax increase to, to cover it. And then we get buses. Uh, that being said, it is encouraging to hear that Marta is doubling down on their intent to continue expanding the streetcar. And right now, the streetcar kind of goes from nowhere to nowhere. It'll dump you off at the Ferris wheel downtown near Centennial Olympic Park, and it does this figure eight uh, around downtown over this way towards uh, the uh, Martin Luther King National Park and Sweet Auburn Avenue and all that stuff. It's not really all that functional. I mean, I guess if you were visiting and staying at a downtown hotel, you could take the streetcar to the MLK Park and do the civil rights tour and then go, but it's... Not really all that functional. I use it on occasion. I'll walk a couple blocks sometimes if I've got uh, tickets to a Hawks game or Atlanta United match or the Falcons or something like that because it will take me within two blocks or so of those venues 
when it dumps me off there at Centennial Park at uh, the Skywheel. But it's not all that functional otherwise. Well, this extension they're going to do is going to bring it further down to Irwin Avenue and then uh, alongside the Beltline, which was the grand concept all along to have the streetcar kind of follow the Beltline. And it'll take you to Pont City Market uh, uh, and what we colloquially call the Murder Kroger, although it's not really murderous anymore. Um, that I would use extensively. So, um, a MARTA representative offered the AJC a, quote, polite but firm assessment of the status of the $230 million project. Uh, project manager Brian Hobbs says, this is happening. He told dozens of people who were gathered at uh, Hoggerbrook's funeral home in the Sweet Auburn neighborhood. He said, quote, I've heard from the mayor's office, this is a project they want to go forward. This project is happening. Hallelujah. Now let's push further. Let's get it to Piedmont Park. Let's inch it on up towards Buckhead. Let's loop it back around into Bank. I mean, let's really get that extensive network that used to exist in the old school days in the old city of Atlanta. 1871, y'all, to 1949, we had an extensive streetcar network. Folks that live in the city would love it, would use it immensely. And I maintain it would create FOMO. Folks who don't have it, who don't have access to mass transit because they've been voting it down, <clears throat> Gwinnett County, uh, <clears throat> Cobb County, would look inside the perimeter and go, huh, looks like that's pretty popular. Folks would use that. Sure would be nice if we had some way to connect to it. You know, like a MARTA line to the battery. Hello, Braves fans. I had another unopened tab earlier this week that uh, was talking about that British study about the four-day work week and how they these like 60, 70 companies to try a four-day work week. And after COVID, it just kind of became a thing for a lot of folks anyway. And like almost, in fact, more than 90% of the companies after the study found productivity went up and those companies are sticking to the four-day work week. I'm encouraged by that. Going to share that link for you in today's show notes. Gosh, I hope I remember to do that. Um, last thing I want to go over today. Oh yeah, on this day in black history. Got to do that. We only have so many more days left in black history to do this. And I've had a really good time and actually learned a lot in the process. I believe off the cuff, it's Floyd Mayweather's birthday. I think I remember seeing that on ESPN. Also, it was on this day in 1864, y'all. This was Civil War era that the first black woman received her MD. Rebecca Lee Crumpler became the first black woman to receive an MD degree. She graduated from the New England Female Medical College. Oh, one of my favorite movies, Hidden Figures, and it was Katherine G. Johnson, who was the groundbreaking mathematician featured in Hidden Figures, passing away on this day in 2016 at the age of 101 years old. All right, I, I, I kind of want to go back to Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. I cannot find evidence of there a movie about her. And you know, Hollywood's going to Hollywood something up, so maybe... There's just not enough interest. But I cannot believe that the first black woman doctor in the United States doesn't have a movie about her life. Born in uh, 1831 in Delaware, having passed away in 1895 after getting her MD in 1864. I'm stunned. There's not a, and I've looked the internet movie database. In fact, I see something in the work, something called resilience. Okay. All right. I'm willing to wait on this. In fact, I need to see if there's some crowdfunding for it. This would be a fantastic project. All right. 
That's going to do it for the week. I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. The weather doesn't look nearly as nice as it's looked all this week, but that tends to be the case, right? I will see you back here uh, Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. and weekdays on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and anytime after 6 p.m. on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And I thank you for that. Have a great weekend.